Welcome to the Cold Steel Surgical Podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. We've had the absolute privilege of chatting with some amazing Canadian as well as international guests over the past year. While the topics have been broad in range, whether clinical, social, or political, our aims for the podcast continue to remain the same. We hope to inspire discussion, creativity, scholarly research, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy our second season as we continue to highlight some incredible guests, deliver detailed masterclass sessions on a myriad of clinical topics, and introduce some fresh new features such as debate and companion formats. We hope you relish the podcast as much as we do. episode, we were honored once again to have another icon of trauma surgery join us. Dr. Ernest E. Jean Moore is a trauma surgeon at the Denver General Hospital. In this episode, we explored Dr. Moore's early insights into the development of trauma surgery and then later acute care surgery as distinct specialties, and how he defined not one but two major surgery journals and had an almost unfathomable research productivity. Finally, We tried to glean some insights from Dr. Moore as to how he thinks surgery will continue to develop in the future, about his thoughts on gun control as a trauma surgeon, and how we might rediscover our passion and joy as surgeons. Sir, we'd like to just start off by uh, talking a little bit about your training pathway. You're certainly not going to be unknown to any of our listeners, but uh, many listeners may not know what your career trajectory was, where did you grow up and, and where did you do your training? Well, I grew up uh, in Pittsburgh and my uh, father was an old time family practitioner. And interestingly, uh, despite his uh, hectic schedule, as you can imagine, an old rural general practitioner back at that time, uh, Interestingly, of the six children, four of us became physicians. So uh, the hard work uh, to us looked appealing, and uh, despite his rigorous schedule, we all pursued uh, medicine. So I think it, our interest in medicine was spurred by my father, and I actually have all my uncles are physicians as well. One of my uncles was uh, Blaylock trained and set up the open heart program at UCLA many years ago. So anyway, I grew up in uh, Pittsburgh and I went to uh, Allegheny College, a small liberal arts college uh, just north of there. And uh, they had a unique program with the University of Pittsburgh uh, School of Medicine where College students were invited in and actually paid uh, for summer research. And they're trying to recruit uh, regional individuals to go to the University of Pittsburgh and specifically to become interested in uh, academic pursuits. So I was very lucky because I got to work with some real legends in uh, surgery. Uh, I started off with Larry Carey. may not know, but he was in Vietnam, and he's the one who really uh, characterized the catecholamine response to uh, shock. 
And then I worked uh, with uh, Dr. Henry Bonson, a cardiac surgeon, and he was really sort of my mentor in medical school. And I spent uh, time with him developing the intra-air balloon because he was one of the uh, pioneers of that. And uh, so I had a very, uh, I was very fortunate to be invited into these research labs uh, at my early age, and that sort of cultivated my interest in uh, research. That's that's really interesting that you have so many physicians and and uh, and docs in your in your family, your extended family, Doctor Mortz. You know, one one of the things that Amir talks about on the podcast not infrequently is. Um, you know, his, his dad was a general surgeon, and I'm 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 curious as an individual who really has no medical professionals in my family, really anywhere. How, how does that inform your your sort of view of of his job and of medicine in general? And and what were some of the pros and some of the cons of of growing up in that kind of really uh, rich environment? Well, I think some of the uh pros is you got to see some of the rewards of uh, medicine. Um, and I think that one of the things that some of the current generation of physicians, including trauma surgeons, uh, don't recognize is that the gratification of uh, being a physician, no matter what field you're in, uh, you know, is to believe that you've really helped the human being. And I think despite my father's uh, schedule, I mean, as a family practitioner, literally, he had office hours six days a week. And the only reason he didn't have office hours on Sundays because we went to church. But I guarantee after church, we went in the station wagon with all the kids and made uh, rounds uh, Sunday afternoon. So, I mean, he basically worked six and a half days a, a week. Wow. And he loved it. And I think we got to see... Yeah, you know, the gratification he had, despite the very demanding uh, lifestyle. And you know, we weren't—you uh, know—we weren't uh, as a family practitioner. He wasn't rewarded uh, financially that much, but I—I I knew that uh, the people in the town respected him. I mean, he was a you know, living legend. He had delivered about eighty percent of the people in town. That we lived in a small town north of Pittsburgh, and uh, when he walked down the street, you know, it was gratifying for everybody to recognize him and say, "Thank you, Doctor Moore. Thank you, Doctor Moore." And I think that's really for us what motivated, uh, I think, all of us to go into medicine. Wow, that that's a remarkable story, and and you know, I'm sure it's not unique growing up in that environment for for many surgeons and many physicians, but. You know, ho hopefully we'll come back in the podcast and talk about, you know, the, the passion of surgery again. Well, one of the things I wanted to move to, though, is, is to obviously congratulate you, but in particular to mention to a lot of our listeners that, um, you know, the, the Denver Health Trauma Center, which is clearly Denver's busiest and what you've been at for many years, was recently renamed the Ernest E. Moore Shock Trauma Center. And clearly that's a tremendous honor. And it's not like you weren't in the in the top, you know, three or four or five uh, iconic trauma surgeons of all time. But that's that seems to be just a whole other level. How how was that experience? Um, how was the, the ceremony? And uh, how do you put that into words? How do you how do you frame it? Uh, that's a good question. I guess embarrassment might be the first uh, 
way to explain it. In <laughs> fact, I uh, almost refused the, to go through with it. I had a discussion with my wife. Because <laughs> when the first was Good presented day, to me, I thought this would be overwhelmingly embarrassing. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, my life's uh, ambition was to establish, you know, a, an academic trauma center. And uh, in that sense, I sort of reveled in the celebration that I had succeeded at least to what I had aspired to. Uh, sure, there's many more things I could have done. Uh, but the celebration was something more than I could ever expect. And I mean, it's sort of like <clears throat> going to your funeral uh, before the time because, uh, you know, all these people uh, came from out of town and said all these things that uh, were grossly embellished <laughs> and overstated. Uh, and, you know, it was a black tie thing and there was heavy alcohol and uh, celebration. It was just uh, a fun occasion. Looking back, uh, it was an opportunity to sort of uh, be gratified with what we had done. Well, you de you deserve every single one of those accolades, and uh, th there's no question, despite your humility, that um, you know people are underselling, not overselling. So, congratulations! That's that's amazing. You, you certainly deserve it. Um, you, you know, I've seen you give so many talks over the years, like so many of us, and and honestly, every single one of them is. Is, is superb but one of the ones in particular that stands out to uh, actually Amir saw it as well both of us watched it was the the interview session you did uh, on the AAST platform and you talked about um, in particular the, some seminal moments in history with regard to the first real or, or dedicated trauma service in the United States and then the evolution towards defining the actual you know subspecialty of, of trauma or injury care and eventually critical care um, for our listeners, maybe who who might have missed that talk, can you can you give us some details on on, on what you talked about? Well, I'm not sure I can remember exactly, uh, but uh, in general, I, I think that uh, many uh, appreciate or should at least appreciate the fact that trauma centers in the United States uh, developed in county hospitals where there was so much trauma that uh, it had to be uh, organized and dealt with. And city hospitals were the environment in which uh, it could be created. And of course, Bill Blaisdell in San Francisco, who uh, died last year, uh, was a legend. And uh, Cook County with uh, Bob Freark was the other that was uh, apparently uh, developed about the same time. And of course, Adams Kiley at Shock Trauma in Baltimore came along a decade later. But, you know, these individuals had vision. Uh, they saw a need, and the county hospital uh, felt it was their obligation to serve the public. So that's how trauma centers uh, developed. Uh, regrettably, uh, and I think, again, a note on medicine itself, uh, as you all know, well, at least I can say that in the United States, uh, we've gone from a profession to business. So trauma that used to be done at county hospitals because we wanted to serve the people has now uh, been 
translated over to uh, major academic centers because uh, it's lucrative and uh, it's more of a business than it is a service to the community. Yeah, there really has been a significant evolution in it. There, there's no doubt. Um, you know, how, how do you reconcile the, the, um, the business side of it with the, you know, the altruistic non-business side of it? And it's a, it's a question probably that seems intuitive to uh, many Americans. But in, in Canada, of course, we don't, we don't really have that system. It's, it's essentially public health care with very little carved off at this point to the, to the private side or the money generating side. Well, I think it's very distressful uh, to watch it evolve into this. Uh, and the ability for us to uh, manage our life has been completely removed. And we're now at the mercy of uh, CEOs and boards that have materially no uh, knowledge of medicine and, frankly, have little interest. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think... Uh, just obscene that we run around uh, even our so-called county hospital we run around with uh, ceos making seven figures and uh, you know we're paid very well i think uh, i've always said we're paid well but to see uh ceos run around in their fancy cars and paid three times what we are to sit over in their office and uh, manage insurance uh negotiations uh, to me is despicable. But it's totally changed our priorities in healthcare. And we are driven the way we were before by trying to do the best and you know, using research and education as an opportunity to improve patient care. They're the last priority now, as I'm sure you're aware. And in fact, it's, uh, it's frightening to see how uh, research is just almost uh eliminated yeah you know it's it's uh it's almost depressing you know and i would say that you know even in canada and certainly in alberta um we're having the same problems you know research is so far down on the list of of um opportunities uh, you know based on funding and the healthcare structure here as well the reality is the the provincial governments really don't care about it at all and they have a hard time reconciling the link between quality outcomes for patients and efficiency in general and and research and so it's a i think it's a battle everywhere no doubt Sp- speaking of research you, you know if you if any of our listeners you know put you into pubmed uh, the response uh, in terms of volume of of work you've you've produced and been involved with over your career is almost unfathomable i'm curious um, maybe threefold. What are some of the biggest contributions that you've made that that you feel the most proud of? Um, because oftentimes I think we both know that maybe those are different from the outside perception of of some of the amazing work that someone's done. I'm also curious um, how you've been so productive for such a sustained length of time. It, again, it's it's darn close to unique, and it, it's something that that uh, you know. I try and emulate selfishly, but um, you seem to do it flawlessly over over a long period of time. Um, yeah, th- those are the first two questions. Well, I uh, I wouldn't say that uh, my achievements are that remarkable, but I would say that uh, anything I've done academically, I would. Uh, 
say should be credited to my mentors and they're the ones that really showed me uh, the pathway and uh, in terms of the research that we've done in trauma uh, one of my mentors was Dr. Ben Eisman who was the first academic chief at the Denver General and hired me and uh, he he was a remarkable individual and uh, when I first started I remember he I sat down with him and he said, well, I'm hiring you because I want you to uh, develop a trauma center like uh, Tronky's done at San Francisco General. Uh, and I said, well, okay, that's a great idea. And so he be- he took me from right out of surgical residency to become a director of trauma. And then he, then he said, uh, and the greatest advice, uh, he said, you know, if you want to be successful in research, uh, it's fairly simple. You go to uh, M&Ms every week and you uh, write down the recurrent problems and the ones that people don't know the answers to. And then you sit back and you go review the literature is available and see what's been done and try to come up with some uh, questions or so-called knowledge gaps we call them now to address. And that was very uh, shrewd advice to me. The very first thing I noticed uh, when I started as a junior uh, attending was uh, how many people died from uh, liver injuries in the ICU after we got out of the operating room and thought we won the battle. And, of course, it was coagulopathy. And so that really was the first area of academic interest I had. And uh, it taught me that I couldn't stick with one area of research that I had to keep looking at the next uh, uncharted uh, arena to begin to do research. And so shortly after coagulopathy, we got into uh, multiple organ failure, which of course, uh, Dr. Eisman in 1975 was uh, credited with coining the syndrome. But we took advantage of uh, of his uh, inspiring work and developed uh, basically a research program around that. And ultimately that led into uh, various uh, evolutions. Remember, uh, we, we developed the multiple organ failure uh, score and began to look at neutrophil priming and the second hit and so on. And at one point with our NIH uh, grants, it sort of looked like we'd run out of gas and then uh, stumbled on the idea of linking the gut to the lung and started to look at what was in mesentery lymph. And so every time we turned the corner, uh, we looked for new areas that we uh, thought need to be explored. Dr. Moore, in addition to, you know, all the achievements we've talked about, what one of the other things, certainly, that you've been the editor of, editor-in-chief of for quite a while is the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery. And then, of course, you've, you've certainly had your, your, uh, your fingerprints uh, and guidance over the World Journal of Emergen- Emergency Surgery and the WSUES in general. Um, how, 
how do you frame those editorships? And in particular, for the Journal of Trauma and Acute Care Surgery, how's that impacted your, your career and, and, your, and your practice? And, and, and what's your sense of overall of that uh, pretty incredible experience? Well, again, I was lucky to be at the right time, uh, the right place. I, I uh, did my surgical training at the University of Vermont, and uh, that's where Dr. John Davis was the chairman of surgery. In fact, uh, he's the one that converted me to do trauma surgery because under uh, initial uh, guidance of Dr. Uh, Bonson at Pittsburgh, I was planning to be a cardiac surgeon. But when I did training under Dr. Davis, uh, he made it so intriguing that I couldn't resist. But having, uh, doing my training in Vermont, I was lucky to, uh, they asked by Dr. Davis to uh, do the abstract section for the journal. So, I mean, literally as a second year resident, I was reviewing papers in the annals and writing in the Journal of Trauma, summarizing research, and that really taught me a little about journalism. And then, of course, as it went on, uh, uh, Dr. Davis uh, turned the reins over to Dr. Pruitt, who uh, is also a long-term mentor of mine and a friend. And uh, so that sort of led naturally into my uh, interest in the journal uh, in taking on some of the editoring, uh, editorial uh, duties. Uh, the World Society is an interesting uh, story in itself. Uh, when I was, when I developed the uh, trauma center at uh, the Denver General, one of my major themes was that trauma surgeons need to be broad-based and needed to do uh, vascular, thoracic, uh, complex, abdominal, uh, and promoted that by keeping a small staff and uh, rotating all the cases and double scrubbing and so on. As time went on, uh, the Journal of Trauma seemed to be drifting more towards uh, critical care. And I kept uh, at the various uh, board meetings and, you know, I was in various committees, kept saying, you know, we need to diversify a little bit. We need to get in of our trauma mission because, frankly, we someone sick. Uh, they don't call the specialist. They call the trauma surgeon. Well, there's a guy in uh, Italy, uh, Fausto Cattino, who heard me talk about this. And just out of the blue one day, I remember I stumbled out of the operating room and uh, someone said to me, hey, uh, there's a guy from Italy who wants to talk to you on the phone. So I got on, this guy introduced himself. I didn't have a clue who he was, and I didn't think he had a clue who I was. And he said, hey, I got an idea. I think we should start a new journal uh, focusing on emergency surgery. And I've heard you talk, and uh, I know it traumas linked to it and he said how would you like to start a new journal so wow that's interesting and he said yeah i'll pay you and your wife to come to uh, bologna next week and uh, i have a date with a lawyer we're going to set up and uh, develop this journal and uh, i'll pay uh, your trip and we'll spend a week here and i'll introduce you to italy and we'll travel around together and i said went home and talked to my wife and she said geez, who is this crazy guy? <laughs> He's worse than you. And uh, so we signed up and went, and that was it. That's awesome. It was uh, unbelievable. <laughs> so that's how the World Sur uh, Journal Emergency Surgery started. And it was largely because 
I couldn't get traction with the WST to get interested in that arena. Huh. Uh, that's very interesting. You, you know, it, almost independent of the journal, but certainly related. You were one of the very early supporters that I remember talking with passion about the the conceptual framework of what eventually became acute care surgery as a as a full subspecialty. And, I, and of course, you know, there, there was other folks in, in that conversation with you as well. But how, how did you see it as the future so early? And, and in, in particular, where do you think it goes from from here? Well, the uh, concept of integrating emergency surgery really came because again, of uh, the experience at the county hospital where the trauma surgeon was the surgeon who did everything uh, that no one else could or would do. And so my vision was that to uh, maintain the credibility of the discipline that we needed to keep up our skills and uh, present ourselves as sort of a, quote, master surgeon that when there's a problem no one else could do, we'd do it. And I I think on the one sense... uh, acute care surgery has salvaged trauma surgery as a viable discipline. On the other, uh, it has, uh, I think, uh, lowered uh, the reputation of trauma surgeons because many trauma surgeons in the United States don't do much high-level operative work. And so uh, it's been a two-edged sword, to say the least. Um, Dr. Moore, you know, people tell us have these phrases, right? Like, you know, so-and-so literally wrote, wrote the textbook on such and such a topic. But in your case, we can literally say you wrote the textbook on trauma. Uh, and, and Dr. Ball and I were, were looking at that, uh, a copy of, of the textbook just before the call and, and just admiring that fact. Can you tell us how you got involved in writing the textbook? And, and how do you think about the importance of such comprehensive, uh, Bible-style textbooks uh, in 2020? Well, the uh, story behind the book is uh, is interesting. I first edited a book with Dr. Eisman uh, called Critical Decisions in Trauma. I'm sure you guys don't have a clue what that was, but it was uh, a book of algorithms. So we took every trauma problem and made it in an algorithm and then explained in the narrative of uh, why those decisions were made. Uh, it's, it's really the template of what's done by the uh, Western Trauma Association and it came really from that project. Well, as a result of that book, which uh, was uh, unexpectedly very successful in trauma, and it makes sort of some sense at this point because you know, in the middle of the night, you're confronted with a bullet through the carotid, and what do you do? Uh, you know, do you shunt? Uh, what do you do if it's three hours old? And so on. And this book would go through all that decision tree. Well, based on the fact that I had uh, you know, gained some reputation in, in editing, and I give that complete credit to Dr. Eisen because uh, he made me co-editor in his book, but I guarantee he did 90% five percent of the work <laughs> i came to the american college uh in uh, atlanta and i was uh, 
had a message at my hotel room that, that somebody from McGraw Hill wanted to talk to me about editing a book. I said, wow, that's interesting. And uh, so I got on the phone and this person said, I'd like to meet you while you're at the college and talk about doing a big textbook in trauma. Because, you know, the one that's out now, uh, which Rutherford is doing, which and Bob Rutherford was at our institution as a vascular surgeon then, uh, is really uh, not selling well, and most of the uh, authors are not trauma surgeons. And I said, sure. So she said, uh, make me a list of the chapters and the authors you would select. So fortunately, I had a list of all the ST members, and I met that week, and I went through this thing. And... Uh, she was rather noncommittal, uh, you know, it sounded interesting. And then uh, I didn't hear anything for about two weeks. And then she called me back and uh, she said, I got a proposition for you. We're interested in you being editor. Uh, but, you know, uh, we interviewed another guy named Ken Maddox from uh, Houston. Do you know him at all? I said, yeah, yeah, I know him. And at that point, I knew him more by reputation than personally. <laughs> said, you know, if if we sat down and compared your notes, they're almost identical. <laughs> He's picked the same topics, the same authors. He's got the same idea you do. You know, do you think there's any possible way you guys can work together? Because we think as a team, you'd be uh, stronger than independently. And I instantly said, uh, sure. Of course, Ken was older than me and had a much bigger reputation in trauma I ever had. And I said, sure, why wouldn't I want to partner with this guy? So uh, that's how the book evolved because uh, they called Ken and offered to him. And then uh, they said, can we get you guys together? And then the next week, he and I were on a conference call together. And then, he, then, then Ken said, you know, I have a junior guy. You probably know Dave Feliciano. I said, yeah, yeah. Actually, Dave and I were pretty good friends at that point because we were sort of growing up together in the academic arena. He says, how about if we add him on and uh, three of us will do it? I said, great. So that's how it started. And I could tell you some amusing stories about that, which, again, I probably shouldn't. But uh, if you talk about two personalities who uh, are journalistically diametrically <laughs> opposed, you would yes. find David Feliciano and Ken Maddox. Ken would just sit down and wrap things off and, uh, you know, would give a second thought. He'd just ramble on. Dave Feliciano, when he wrote something, it would take him a month. He was so meticulous. He wanted to look up every little detail. So I was sort of the arbitrator between these two fighting each other <laughs> constantly with every edition of this book. We, of course, had been long-term good friends. Uh, it was amusing watching uh, the different approaches to journalism that ultimately led to this product. Huh. That's, a, that's such a great story, and I, I can certainly see you in the, in the middle of, of both those gents for sure. Dr. Mora, I, I did want to touch on a slightly different topic, uh, which is um, you took the unusual step of, or maybe it's not that unusual, but uh, and maybe you, you can talk about whether it's unusual or not, but you took the step of actually speaking out against assault rifles, um, and in fact, there's a there's a well uh, publicized uh, article about you actually disagreeing with your brother about whether assault rifles should be banned or not. 
what compelled you to kind of speak out about assault rifles and and how how do you see surgeons uh participating in this very national public debate around gun control in the US well that's a uh politically sensitive uh topic but let me put that frame a little bit i'm an avid hunter uh i grew up you know in western pennsylvania and the only time the boys and I got to spend time. My father was hunting season. So we all became very avid hunters. And I remain an avid hunter. I, uh, elk hunting is one of my favorite passions, despite my wife's disapproval. But uh, I am a very avid hunter. But I did witness, uh, as you may know, uh, Columbine. And I was struck by the fact that there's so many innocent High school kids just mow down in this devastating event. And then we, uh, that was further supported by the Aurora uh, movie theater shooting. And it just to me uh, was uh, so unconscionable that we would arm crazy people with these devices that could go out and randomly kill innocent people. Not to say that gun violence in the United States and the ravages you're deserving, uh, but I always say when the residents say, oh, you know, so-and-so got shot, and I said, you know, you play with fire, you uh, get burnt. Uh, so to some degree, you know, some of the violence we see with guns is brought upon by individuals that, that you know, that they've made that decision. But these poor kids that sit in high school and have someone come in and just mow them down at their uh, desk, to me, was uh, unacceptable. And I, despite my uh, joy of uh, hunting, and I don't necessarily enjoy killing animals, but I certainly enjoy hunting them, uh, I didn't see rationale for having an assault rifle. I just didn't see the purpose of it. It, you know, it's a military device, as you know, and it's designed as to kill as many people as possible in a short time period. And so it just didn't seem to be uh, an instrument should, that should be put in the hands of people that can't make rational decisions. Um, one, of the, one of the things, and we keep going back to this interview because I, I, I reread it last night and just found it moving at places. One of the things that I really enjoyed uh, that you, you spoke about in that interview with the AAST is sort of like the fact that there's this rhetoric around limiting work hours has perhaps kind of dampened the conversation around loving surgery and and the fact that actually having a passion for, for surgery is, is what makes your career fulfilling. And, and we sort of touched on it a bit already in the interview, but how... How how do you think that the conversation has changed and or, or how do you think the work hours has sort of changed that conversation and how does that current reality concern you and what do you think we can do about it? Well, uh, I think uh, there are two things that have hurt our discipline. I've alluded to one is that we have given up complex surgery uh, so that we... Uh, now view a laparoscopic colostectomy as a challenging operation, uh, which has led to, uh, you know, our basic skills have deteriorated to a point of uh, being 
embarrassing at times. The second thing, though, that hurt us, I think, as a discipline is this concept of uh, shift work. And uh, perhaps best epitomized in trauma, you can't select when someone's going to have a severe injury and uh, you uh, simply can't treat them by turning the light switch off and on. I took a call just uh, two nights ago and a guy was shot uh, six times with large uh, caliber bullets. Uh, I've been back to the operating room with him uh, every day for three days. And, uh, you know, the first time was three o'clock in the morning. The next time was two o'clock in the afternoon. And I uh, just finished him two hours ago. And that's the way it's got to be. Uh, you got to be committed to those patients and you got to put everything else away and take care of those patients. And I missed, uh, you know, research uh, meetings. I missed conference calls. But when this patient uh, needed care, I took him to the operating room and led the team through. Uh, and that's a rarity here. Uh, I often uh, listen to stories at M&M's, which just drives me crazy, and complications where someone will have five different attending surgeons and no one knows who's responsible. Of course, no one wants to take the blame. And my constant uh, uh, re rebuttal to that is, you know, wh why don't you guys take care of these patients? You know, you put a knife on them, you own them. Why would someone else take someone back to the operating room for open to that abdomen or whatever it is uh, when you're the surgeon. And these people, the new generation, look like, uh, uh, you know, I'm deranged. Uh, I, I, why would you do that? Uh, and they walk out of here, you know, routinely at four in the afternoon and think that's a full day's work. And to me, that has uh, destroyed our reputation as trauma surgeons who not only can, A, take care of everything, but B, are always available to take care of our patients. And most regrettably, I think the new generation, and I, I'm speaking generically, uh, there are clearly exceptions, but the new generation is missing that gratification of taking care of that patient. What I started with, with what we respected out of my father. You know, when, when you have, uh, and we all have, you know, these miraculous saves, you know, everyone in the hospital knows you. The nurses know you, the family knows you, the people that bring meals around know you. It just the gratification of doing something beyond what's expected is lost now because with this ship work, no one knows who the attending is. And when someone gets in trouble in the middle of the night, they call who's on call, not the surgeon who did the original operation. So it really has, and I, in my sense, uh, you know, has significantly uh, robbed us of the gratification of why we do all this. So that's my concern. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree anymore, Dr. Moore. Uh, you know, of course, as the scenario or as the case gets more and more complicated, there's so many details that are lost in translation when you have those sign-overs, change-overs, you know, shift work, whatever the terminology you'd like to use is. Uh, it it becomes it becomes scary uh, on occasion, and I don't necessarily think. I mean, you, you might disagree with this, but I I don't necessarily think that patients and the, and society and the public at large understand that structure and understand that the risk uh, and the the risk to you know them, but to quality and efficiency in general, 
um, that comes with that structure really exists. I almost feel like w as a system, if that's your system and it's a, it's a shift in, shift out structure or framework, um, we're not being honest or, or at least forthright with the patients in terms of that level of risk that you're touching on. Well, absolutely. You know, the, the press has made it uh, such that a patient's family would rather see, you know, a, a clean-shaven, shaven, uh, bright-eyed physician in the morning rather than someone uh, dragging in with uh, unshaven and blood all over them. Uh, and they don't recognize the difference. Uh, and in fact, if anything, uh, they believe that we all need 12 hours of sleep at night and we shouldn't work more than 30 hours a week and there isn't anything such as stress because that uh, limits our decision-making. And I totally disagree with that framework. Yeah, there, there's no doubt there's, there's some giant problems that attach to that. Well, I guarantee you, you did your ripple today, and I guarantee you, you wouldn't dream if you end up having a biliary pancreatic leak mm -hmm. to have one of your partners taking care of that. No, you're exactly right. You, yeah. you wouldn't sleep with it. You wouldn't live with it. Dr. Moore, in closing, I wanted to maybe bring us full circle. You, you started this amazing conversation with us talking about growing up in your family and with your dad. Um you have, and you, you, I think you touched on it very briefly, you have a couple of great sons and I, I can tell, uh, you know, the audience having talked to one at length uh, and the other one uh, um, a, little, a little bit, um, they're really good guys. Like, you know, you and your wife have done a, a tremendous job and I, I know you know that. Um, I'm curious with, with, you know, all the stuff we've talked about, your clinical volumes, your administrative uh, burden and of course, your your research side of things, in addition to, you know, all the things I don't know about that that you do on a daily basis. How did you balance and manage your your family? Because I think lots of us struggle with that, with that with that equation for sure. Well, I'd give a hundred percent of the credit to my wife for anything good that's happened in our family. I can assure you. <laughs> uh, you may, you probably know my wife. Uh, she's an internist and she's very uh, uh, quiet and uh, reserved person. But as all my friends would say, you know, I don't mind annoying you, but I do not want to cross paths with your wife. <laughs> They're That's deadly awesome. afraid of her. So she's kept me honest. And uh, I think that fundamentally, when you begin uh, your career, you need to decide what your priorities are. And uh, inculcated in me uh, and certainly reinforced by my wife was that the family is your number one priority. And, uh, you know, the, you're reminded about every day, uh, you go in rounds and you talk, you talk about a Dr. Eisman and the medical students and Residents, their eyes are glazed over. They don't have a clue who you're talking about. And here, you know, in his time, uh, he was a literally walking legend. And uh, three years after he dies, no one knows who he is. And so I think that you have to be careful of what you think you're accomplishing and understand that really your legacy is your family. And in that sense, uh, uh, the priorities as you go through life, uh, I think, uh, become important. And so 
I would certainly give my wife credit for all the academic achievements of uh, our boys. And, you know, Hunter is a transplant fellow and Peter is a pulmonary fellow. And both of them are going to be full-time academic uh, when they finish. So I, we're proud of them. And we're proud that they've, uh, you know, pursued those uh, careers uh, because I think they recognize and they see all their friends who have made much more money than they're ever going to make. Uh, and realize they could be making money in other professions, uh, but look to the gratification of what medicine uh, presents. Now, you know, again, as I uh, went through uh, my challenging years, and certainly when I was in the 40s and 50s, the academic challenges and demands were tremendous, but I I set uh, the priorities, and uh, one of the things I'm glad that I did, boys uh, remark about this when we have a few beers is that I committed myself uh, to their activities and what I focused on because uh, uh, I couldn't compete with my wife in the academic arena with their education was their sports and I can guarantee you that unless someone's dying in the operating room uh, I never missed a hockey game I never missed a lacrosse game of my two boys uh, throughout their life and uh, they acknowledged that later that they knew I'd be in the stands every uh, every game and they knew no matter what the outcome uh, that, that I was there to support them and I think that as I always say uh, my favorite quote I'm not sure I can take any uh, credit for it is uh, uh, that you should uh you, you cannot work hard unless you play hard. And you got to remember that your family is your number one priority. And uh, that's the life I've tried to live. Uh, it's certainly not been perfect all the time, but I still believe that's important. And I, uh, you know, people have asked, why do I still go to work? Uh, you know, I should have been retired 15 years ago. I certainly could have afforded, frankly. But I can't wait to wake up and come uh, come work, uh, whether it's a research lab or taking trauma call. I just, uh, I can't imagine uh, giving it up until the point in which I think that physically or mentally I shouldn't be doing it. And it's just a way of life. You've been listening to Cold Steel the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.